Today's reading is from Isaiah 58, 1 to 4, page 731. True fasting. Shout it, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to the people their rebellion and their house of Jacob and the house and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek out, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why we have fasted, they say, and you have not seen it. Why why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed it? And on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with your wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and exploit your voice to be heard on high. The next reading is from John 1, 43 to 51, page 1050. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip to say, to say him, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. <laughs> Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found, we have found the one of Moses wrote about in the law and about who the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I... I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. But he then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thank you. Throughout Lent, we'll be having a guest now, but a familiar face for many of us sharing the preaching with me, um, the Reverend Paul Johansson. Um, I'll invite Paul to come up. Um, Paul was a pastor here for nine years and recently um, left our church and has been working as a chaplain at King Bay Chaplaincy. But Paul's still a familiar face around fairly often, but if you're newer, maybe he's not as familiar to you, but will become so. So let's pray for Paul as he prepares to give God's word to us. Jesus, we thank you for Paul and for the gift that he's been to our community over so many years. We thank you that he's able to 
share with us in this season of Lent to um, consider what it is you're calling us as a church to give up. We pray that you would be with him as he preaches to us and that we would be able to hear um, your very words for our lives and for our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I come to this, uh, this passage on Isaiah 58, um, it takes me, uh, and particularly, particularly my, my verse and my focus that Nick assigned to me um, about quarreling, it reminds me of the proverb, uh, chapter 17, that says that anyone who loves to quarrel loves sin. So that's an embarrassing thing for me and for, for us and for our culture. But when I think about quarreling uh, in this context, it takes me back years ago during uh, a time of uh, supposed spiritual deepening. I had been... Uh, been recently introduced to uh, the whole idea of going on monastic retreat, visiting monasteries as a way to deepen my silence and my prayer and my relationship with God. And I'd been doing a ton of reading and I'd done some traveling to go to a few monasteries and, and I was so excited to take my family uh, to a monastery. Uh, they, they didn't agree to go for a whole week of monastic retreat. But one year, uh, um, we decided to drive down and visit, just for a couple of hours, this monastery in upstate New York, um, the Genesee Abbey, and uh, on our way to uh, a trip to the southern United States. And I can remember that day, because it's a really important day, as you'll find out in the history of our family, where I was so excited to have Karen and the kids exposed to a monastery. They had never done anything like this before to see monks and to go to a daily office, to go to a service and hear the monks sing. And I remember just being so excited and so focused on that. And then somewhere along the journey, that desire got way off track. And we got into one of those horrendous family arguments that it's taken me a lot of years to kind of come to terms with, never mind talk about in a sermon. One of those nonsensical, crazy, rage-filled arguments that actually caused me to pull our vehicle over and just about abandon um, the trip, if not my family. So nevertheless, the eventual arrival at the monastery didn't quite work the way that I wanted it to work. The experience was flat as a pancake. The other um, members of the family uh, were not about to buy into my feigned excitement about this deepening spiritual reality and visit to the monastery, having just witnessed what we shared together something that has been a scar um, in my life to me uh, whenever time I go back there. And uh, the contrast between the desire for a spiritual experience with God from my family and what we had experienced in the tumultuous drive down um, couldn't have been more far apart. And every time I think about that story, I am grateful for 
the power and the reality of forgiveness, which has allowed me to live in my family without the shame that I deserve um, because of my particular participation in that argument. But the story helps me as I come to Isaiah 58 and its insight on true fasting. Because like my personal story, there is a feigned desire to experience the living God. This convicting passage is about a religious desire. It's a, it's a false, very broken religious desire of people who actually find very little satisfaction in the religious practices that they are bringing to their faith. The technical context in Isaiah is that Israel has really probably adopted an approach to God that is more like foreigners, more like what is called the Canaanite religion. This is a, a religious approach that tries to manipulate or influence God's behavior in order to get God to do good things for us where it's pretty clear that if you read the record of Scripture, the story of Israel in the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that, that the, the slant and the unique slant of Israel's faith is that Israel's faith was about responding to what God had already done, responding to God's faithfulness, not trying to manipulate God, but responding to God in obedience and in love. As a result, we get this reminder in today's text of central, unique characteristics of Israel's faith, and that is that how you love God and how you treat people, or how you're at peace with God and how you put away or put off a kind of quarrelsome, argumentative approach to others are actually merged together in our love for God. To quote the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And added to that is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus makes that really clear in his teaching that those things aren't separated. And so Israel is reminded that their love for God is merged with their love for their neighbors is merged in particular with their love for widows and for orphans and for the stranger and the visitor and the foreigner in their land. Israel's audience described here, or Isaiah's audience, they, they desire to experience God. At least that's what they say. They say to God, in Isaiah's description, day after day, you say that you're seeking me, that you're really desiring me. And you say to God, why have, you, why have we fasted? Why have we given up food and drink? Why have we fasted? And, and yet you haven't noticed our fasting. You haven't even looked at us. You haven't seen us. You haven't recognized. You haven't validated our worship and our prayer and our discipline. And the word from Isaiah comes back that you cannot fast like you do and expect 
to be heard by God. You can't play the charade of a religious posture of trying to manipulate God with your superficial spirituality and expect that the God who sees the heart of every person is going to listen and pay attention. And so what's taking place here is Isaiah is indicting a duplicitous, hypocritical religious approach, lacking in the integrity of the heart because your spiritual practices, our spiritual practices, and our social relationships are fundamentally disconnected. It doesn't dawn on us that who we are in the sanctuary is deeply informed by who we are on the sidewalk and in the, in this, in the society at large. That those two things for the God of Israel are always kept closely knit together. What happened, actually, according to Isaiah, is that these practices didn't even touch the hearts of the worshipers. They didn't even go an inch deep, that the superficialness was so embarrassing that what they did with a desire through their fasting, what they did to try to get God's attention, to try to help God see them, really brought out the worst in the human spirit. The conclusion of their seasons of fasting were just filled with fights and with quarrels. As one writer says, you can imagine the edginess which would result if a basically unspiritual family, note to self, spent the day together in increasing hunger. You can imagine what was going on below the surface for people who were fasting, but really their hearts were not right with God or with one another. You can imagine the effect that that would have. And as someone else commentator asks, especially in a hot and dry land, like this Middle Eastern context. You can just imagine how skin-deep religion would have no effect on the real relationships of people in a family. Earlier in the verse before, there's an expression that these same worshipers who are quarreling with one another also are treating their employees like crap. The speculation might be that the employees or the servants are invited to go into a season of fasting, but then their owners, are, their bosses, are actually making them work twice as hard to make up for the lost time that they took to enter into the religious practice in the first place. Not very impressive or attractive. The point is that there is a connectedness between fasting and true fasting. And as the guys at Knox, uh, Nick and Phil, have come up with for this season, we're looking at fasting in order to reflect on other things that we might actually give up, like a quarrelous spirit, like an argumentative approach to human relationships, personally, family, culturally, socially, There are two links for me when I think about this. The first link is an Old Testament link that goes to the ancient story of the book of Ruth. 
And in that story, there is a man named Boaz, who is a successful businessman who lives and works and runs a business in Bethlehem. And Boaz is pictured as a person who goes around blessing people. And he is an important instrument in the heart of God for rescuing these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, who have gone through a family tragedy and who are economically at risk and in a desperate situation. It would be easy to see Boaz as a person who blesses people on the exterior but has some shady business practices on the side. But you know that for Boaz, there is an integrity of heart. There is a love for God and a love for people. And you know that first and foremost because when Ruth comes to try to gather some food on Boaz's fields, his workers treat her with a deep and profound respect. And in fact, it's arguable that they give her permission to actually gather food that wasn't necessarily or rightfully hers to gather. They go beyond the extra mile to treat her and to love her and to care for her. And why is that? Because their boss, his mouth and his heart are filled with blessing. Because they've experienced the love of God in their treatment as employees, which has shaped them and crafted them to become the kind of people who are also able to extend that kind of hospitality. That's what Isaiah is trying to get at. True blessing leads to true blessing, but false fasting leads to something else that lacks blessing and lacks integrity. The other connection for me is the second reading that James did for us a little bit earlier from John's Gospel and the calling of Nathaniel. Nathaniel says to Jesus, when Jesus says to him, here is a true Israelite. Here is a person who has a heart of gold. Here is a person who has a pure spirit. Here is a person in whom there is no guile. There is no deceit. There is no duplicity. This is an honest, true person who reflects the ethos and the character of the spirituality of Israel. And Nathanael says to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you before Philip brought you. I saw you sitting under the tree and I know you. Jesus notices Nathanael. He notices him before he even meets him. And that's the desire of the people in Isaiah's audience. They want God to notice them. They want God to see their false religious practices. But Jesus notices Nathanael, not just under the fig tree. Jesus really notices Nathanael because he sees him. He sees Nathanael as who he really is. And don't we all want to be seen like that? By God and by one another. Don't you really have that desire to be seen, to be known, to be, be credited for who you really are? Not to expand your ego, but just to affirm the work of God in your life and in your heart. 
And Jesus sees that there's no falsity, there's no duplicity, there's no hypocrisy in Nathanael. And who is Jesus? But he is the presence of God. The presence of the God that Isaiah's audience so desperately wanted to impress and yet who refused to be impressed. And just when we're reflecting on this unique spiritual, relational, and social connectedness of the biblical faith of Israel, we realize that Nathaniel, the pure of heart, is also identified as the son of Israel. Nathaniel embodies everything about biblical spirituality. He loves God and his neighbor. He doesn't have a history of dispute or debate or criticism or unfair relationships. He is really a truly good guy in the deepest words, the meaning of that word goodness. What is quarreling really? What do you think about when you hear a phrase like a quarrelous spirit or an argumentative nature or a kind of disputing personality? What is combative strife? What is kind of deeply rooted nature of disagreement? What does it mean that we should fast from that? How how about this? to make the connection come full circle. How about at the root of our arguments and the root of our temptation to quarrel is because we do not see people. We actually have these long debates with people and we actually lack the ability to see them as who they really are. And so what we do is we put our issues and our opinions and our arguments and our needs and desires to win and to look smart and to be right in order to support and inflate and expand our own broken egos. We put our projects and our tasks, we put the measurables of life both philosophically and economically and personally in front of us and so we can't see a real human being on the other side. Think the conversations between the Ontario government and the teachers. Think ongoing disputes in family life and in marriage. You know now that I know all about that. People desire to be seen by God. That's a deep desire that we have to be known by God, to be loved by God, to experience the presence of God who knows us and who loves us. But the texts remind us today that truly seeing people and being seen by God go together. The reason to fast from quarreling is because quarreling prevents us to extend our love and care for each other. We place something that's false. We place a barrier. We place a wall between our calling to love one another as God's 
children because we elevate other things. I'm not even going to tell you what that barrier was for me on my way to the Genesee. I mean, it was so ridiculous that you can't even call it material or economic or philosophical. I mean, it was the most craziest nothing you can ever imagine that finally we have actually forgotten what it was all about. But can you imagine a father and a pastor wanting to share with his family a deep spiritual experience and yet on the freeway, on the way, forgetting who they were because of some silly thing that crept in and exploded on the scene of their hearts? It happens. But our tendency to argue, our tendency to quarrel, our, our, especially in this culture, so our identity is so individualistic, and what we think and what we know and how we can argue is so much a part of our self-worth and our self-understanding. But to realize that that is an ongoing competition with, that prevents us from seeing other people as beloved sons and daughters of God created in God's image and created and called for community with us. This past week, one of my closest university friends, Catherine Mulroney, lost her husband to cancer. It happened on Thursday. Catherine is a dear friend of mine since we were 19-year-olds in Canadian Politics 100 at Victoria College, but she was from St. Mike's. Michael Babbitt, her husband, became an eminent business journalist in Canada. And when he passed away, tweets came from across the country, from the presidents of the banks to the prime minister's office and well beyond and around the world. As David Walmsley, the Globe's editor-in-chief, wrote this, that Mike Babbitt was at the very heart of the Globe and Mail's journalism. He was empathetic, accurate, charming, and happiest when learning and teaching. One of Michael's young protégés, a reporter named Karen, remembers that one evening, Mr. Babbitt poured over a story that she had written with her colleague, and they mentioned that a Halloween costume that Miss Howlett had given to Miss, Miss, her colleague's son was too tight, and without even raising his head from the keyboard, he said, just open up the back seam and everything will be fine. So human and so warm. Mr. Babbitt, his obituary in the Globe this Saturday, says this, would breathe life into the bland business of economic statistics. And he could condense the significance of a Bank of Canada study or a corporate annual report into just two sentences. He was usually pithy without being nasty. However, he could be biting when something in the corporate world offended his sense of decency and justice. 
He excoriated Caterpillar Incorporated when, asked for, when they asked for large pay cuts in the London, Ontario locomotive plant and then locked out the employees before shutting down the factory, putting hundreds of people out of work. Of course it was going to fail at the bargaining table, which you'd expect when you're demanding wage cuts of up to 50%, he wrote. On another column in 2001, after September 11th, he looked at companies who were just a little bit too prompt to talk about the impact of terrorism and terrorist attacks in their business. Emerging from the rubble, he wrote, were incredible tales of tragedy, despair, courage, and love. And the CEO of Heineken is talking about the impact of the beer market. In a world known for arguing and bickering and making a fine point, Mike Babbitt was known as a mentor who respected his younger colleagues he did everything that he could, and as one witness said, that the thing about Mike is that I always felt, even when I was struggling in my career, that he always valued me. Mike saw people. Eric Regoli, who is the Globe correspondent from Rome, wrote in a particularly beautiful personal tribute to Mike a few days ago, that Mike was the only editor he ever had in his career who would call him across the ocean just to ask how he was doing. The Vice President of the Bank of Nova Scotia's, or the Deputy Chief Economist of the Bank of Nova Scotia said that we always sent our young, inexperienced analysts to Mike because although we knew that he was scrupulous, we also knew that he had empathy. When I think about my friend Mike Babbitt, I think of a person who was able to make the connection. Highly skilled, deep perspective, a fierce pen of opinion and criticism at times. And yet, as the publisher of the Globe and Mail said, when he passed away, we lost a great journalist, but we lost a better man. And that's what Isaiah wants for his people. They say that the season of Lent is a season of self-examination, a time for deep reflection as we look at our own lives and as we assess our spiritual integrity, and certainly it is that. But it is first and foremost a season to purposefully reflect on Jesus and his pathway to the cross. And what we see in Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's spirituality articulated by Isaiah. What we see in Jesus is a fierce, razor-sharp passion for the project of God's kingdom and yet profound personal compassion and respect and love for each person that he met. A capacity to speak God's love and to tell the truth. A capacity to do the will of the Father without manipulation. 
and actually without trying to have it his own way. Jesus' life is important for us as we journey with him and as we reflect again on his life and his death and resurrection because his perfection in treating people as the Son of God who gave his life on a cross now makes it possible for him to form a community who are capable of loving God with all of their hearts and all of their minds and all of their souls and their neighbors as themselves who are capable of caring for the widow and the orphan and welcoming and caring for the stranger and the foreigner. Jesus makes it possible for us to fast from our quarreling once and for all. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who became a human being for us, to walk in our shoes and to live in our culture, to experience our human trauma and beyond, and yet as exposed to temptation and sin as you were, you never allowed yourself to give in to that temptation. We thank you for the reminder of the beautiful unified relationship which you share with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that non-quarrelous relationship would be ours today and in the days ahead. Amen.